You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening, Revolution. How are you guys doing? All right. So cool. Is there anyone new here? Just looking? No. Okay, cool. I don't need to introduce myself. What up, guys? I'm glad you guys are here. And I have to act professional. Um, cool. So we are continuing through our study of 1 John. And what we're doing is we're seeing how John pushes us on to true fellowship, uh, true knowledge of God. Right? He wants us to truly know God. Uh, in order to do that, he wants us to know God rightly. Right? He wants us to have sound doctrine. He wants us to love God fully because part of knowing God is loving God. And he wants us to keep and obey the commandments of God because to Know and love God is to obey Him, right? That comes out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Your kids actually learned last week, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Which you can't use on them. Um, no, see, whatever, I'm lame. I don't have kids. I don't know, what are good, what are good dad jokes? Brandon will hook me up later. Um, so anyway, so last week we looked at the doctrines surrounding sin, not all of them, but we took a big, like a sweeping look at a lot of it. Uh, so we took a look at sin and its nature and that the fact that it's affected all of humanity. And then we saw in chapter 1, verse 9 of 1 John, that if we confess our sins, right, in faith and repentance, turning from our sin, acknowledging Christ's lordship, coming to him by faith, clinging to his works, right, if we confess our sins to God in faith and repentance, that God is always always, always, always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus. All right, but John, what he didn't do in, that verse, in those verses we looked at last week was go into much detail about just how God forgives us our sins. All right, and that's what we're going to be diving into uh, a good bit this evening. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 this evening. Um, and the passage that we're in elaborates on how that forgiveness of sins occurs, what exactly God has done in order that we might be saved. Um, but this text of Scripture gives us uh, another good look at sin. All right, just like last week, you're going to see this being uh, a theme of John. And just a little heads up for you, if you guys have never really studied First John very much, um, a lot of us are probably more familiar with Paul's style, right? like Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, books like that. Because um, Paul will argue A, B, C, D, E, conclusion, F. Right? He's very linear in his thinking. Something you're going to find out with uh, John is John writes in a circle, and it's maddening. Right? He's like, okay, so we're going to talk about A, and then B, and then C, and then D, and then E, and then we're going to tighten the circle a little bit, and we're going to keep circling those same four or five topics. Right? So you guys are going to see that. So we talked about sin last week. We're talking about sin again this week. A few weeks down the road, I'm probably going to preach the same sermon again, which makes this whole series easy on me. Um, <laughs> Right, but seriously, he writes in a circle, so we, you guys are going to hear a good bit of repetition throughout this series. Um, so we're going to take another good look at sin and the truth, um, the truth that we need to take our sin seriously. Uh, but the text that we're in this evening also gives us a solid rock of hope that our sins will indeed be forgiven because God has appointed an advocate to represent us before the Father. And that advocate is Jesus Christ. So, but, but often, just a little bit of intro before we get into this, often we take our sins too lightly. We talked about this last week, that we don't think on them. 
like we should. We are not grieved by them. We do not hate them. We don't try to kill them with as much effort as we should. And John is going to take care of that in the first line of the first verse we're going to look at this evening. But then, sometimes, right, just the experience of a Christian, sometimes as we work diligently to put our sins to death, right, as, as we struggle and strive to be holy as God is holy, to put our sins to death, to be like Jesus, we can become overwhelmed with guilt and, and fear and despair because we come to find out by experience that we cannot keep the law of God fully. You guys ever had that experience where you just try and try and try and then the reality just keeps hitting you and hitting you and drives you to your knees in despair? I can't keep the law, right? It's like the more you try to kill sin sometimes, it's like digging a hole, right? Like, yeah, I got that layer of dirt. Hey, what do you know? There's more dirt down there still. Let's keep digging it. And you can do it for hours and there's just always still more dirt. There's always something else that needs taken care of. That's what killing sin is like. Under every layer of dirt, there is another layer of dirt, just maybe wasn't that obvious five layers ago. Right? You feel me on that? So we're always killing sin. There's always more sin there. And that can lead you to despair. It can lead you to fear. It can lead you to desperation. And for moments like those, John gives us the good news that Jesus Christ is our representative. Right? Not us. We don't represent ourselves before the throne of God. Christ represents us. All right, so, and I might get in trouble for this. There's a fly up around here. Um, if I look like I'm not Pentecostal, I'm not like <laughs> just waving my arms around like a crazy person. Um, um, I don't. I don't want to s- look. Don't don't misunderstand me here. Uh, like Obama, let me be clear. Right? Like, hear me on this. I want us to have a really good view of our sin. Okay. I want us to have a good view of our sin. I don't want us to take our sin too lightly because that's often our problem is we don't take our sin seriously. right? We take our sin very lightly. But I also don't want us to take our sin too severely. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you should live in terror every day that you wake up. But if you're a Christian, I don't want you to take your sin too severely. right? Always take it seriously, but not too lightly, not too severely, because, Christian, we are saved by the work of another. We are, we are saved by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our obedience that saves. It is not our killing of sin that saves. But it is the righteousness and suffering of Christ. Christ Himself that saves. Right? So don't take your sin too lightly, but also don't be too severe with yourself when you do sin. Don't become a navel gazer. Right? Where you're always looking down because you realize how you've screwed up. Look up and look to Jesus. All right. So with that being said, we're going to read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to pray and we're going to get into this. So this is what John writes. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that truth. Holy Spirit, please open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart this evening. Speak light into what's dark in us. That we might behold the glory of Christ. God, show us that we ought not sin. We ought ought to strive for holiness. 
But God, for our sin, when we do rebel, there is a remedy in the Advocate, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Break us with that. Let us see this truth and let us glorify you and seek to live a life that honors you in light of that truth. Please do a work of sovereign grace here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm just going to start off with a freebie, right? So this first point that I want to make, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not do this. I have to. John begins this whole thing with my little children. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, right? He starts off with my little children, right? So there's a tone shift here uh, compared to the first chapter that we've read, right? John is no longer focusing on heretics and heretical teachings in these two verses, Uh, In those three words, my little children, it's a term of endearment. A pastoral tone of love comes across, right? Like John is an old man at this point, right? He's He's the last living apostle. Many of the people receiving this letter have probably been converted under John's ministry or at least by the fruit of his ministry, right? Like John played a part in someone's conversion and that person led to these people's conversions, Um But again, John's an old dude, and John, in saying, my little children, he is conveying that he really, deeply, truly loves the people in these churches, in the church that he's writing to in Asia Minor. He really loves the people of God. He is a good pastor. That's that's one of the biggest reasons that he writes. Again, using endearing terms, he wants them to know how much that he loves them. So I just want to take a second and let me be, I'm uh, I'm getting sentimental in my old age. Right? I was thinking of you guys. I'm 25 years old. God help me. Whenever I'm like 40, I'm just going to just sit and cry all the time. Um, right? I, I, I seriously just want to take a second. Um, I really love you guys. Like, sincerely. Like, I worry over you like you're my kids. And I know that's really weird because a lot of you are older than me. Right? But like, I, I seriously, like, I, I pray for you. I, I think of you. I want to help you. In any way that I can, I, I see you, man. Like, I, I, I watch you guys grow. I want to show you Christ. I want to facilitate any growth whatsoever. I want to counsel with you. I love you guys. Um, and if I'm not showing that at any point, I want you guys to tell me. Right? If I'm not being a loving pastor, if I'm not being the brother in Christ that I should be to you guys, I want you to tell me. If I'm not showing this currently or if I ever stop showing that I really, truly love you guys and I do anything for you, short of sinning, let me know. Because, I, again, I want to serve you as best I can, right? my little children. Right, so in light of that, and I want to make this just because I figured I could knock out a few meetings at once, uh, a note to you would-be pastors in our congregation because I know we got like, uh, we just sent a couple people off to seminary. We got a couple more people that are interested in seminary. We got a couple people that feels like they're being led to leadership. Here's a word to you guys. Love the people of God. Love them. Pray for them. Sacrifice for Christ's bride. It's going to be hard at times, right? You guys drive me insane once in a while. It's going to be difficult at times. You're going to have to deal with difficult people. Ministry is going to be messy. Human beings are annoying. You're annoying too, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, so am I. Human beings are sinful. We're going to irritate each other. So it's going to be hard sometimes. But if you desire the pastoral ministry like John had, if you're not marked by love for the church, then you are not called to this. Period. If you're not marked by love for the church, you are not called to be a pastor, nor are you qualified to be a pastor because you're not to serve as one under compulsion, but one that wants to do the job because you love the people, is what Peter tells us. This job is not for you, and you're not called by God if you don't love the people of God. 
whenever I read this, I can't help but to think, John doesn't say, you stupid kids, I am writing these things to you, right? He says, my little children, I write these things to you, right? So there's a freebie for you. Uh, if you're not going to be a pastor or whatever, you, at least you know what to hold us accountable to now, right? So as a freebie, it has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon. I just couldn't, couldn't glance over it. So John, this, hit the reset button on this sermon now. Uh, John starts this new thought in chapter 2 with, let's read it again, verse 1. Or verse 1a, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now that, so that you may not sin. Why would John start with that in this new paragraph, in this new thought? Well, in light of what we looked at last week, chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, it actually makes sense. Right? Where he says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, uh, we make God a liar and his word is not in us, right? So in light of that, it actually makes sense because John has told us in the last three verses we looked at of free grace. You are a sinner, but if you confess your sin, forgiveness is guaranteed to you. If you confess your sin in faith and repentance, right? Verse 9 uh, that we looked at last week says, if we confess, right? That if, that's conditional, meaning any time we confess our sins in faith and repentance, that this forgiveness is absolutely unlimited. Every single time you confess to God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So John probably writes verses, or verse 1a of this passage we're in, he writes, probably writes this in anticipation Right, of people responding like Paul expected them to respond. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right, is what the King James says in verse 2. No. Right, it's the strongest Greek negative that comes next. And I think John is pushing that same idea. Right, no way am I saying that you are to continue in sin in light of God's free grace. Are right, you guys tracking with me on that? Does that make sense? So my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Because I just told you about free grace. I don't want you to abuse the grace of God. And I think he addresses that because, and hear me on this, because don't be this kind of person. There will always be people who pervert the doctrines of grace and twist them to their own destruction. There will always be people who do that. I know people who do this. Where their mentality, and we talked about this in the small group a little bit today, that is, is this. There's the mentality. God will forgive me so I can live however I want and just confess my sins later. Anyone, come on, be honest. Like, you've done that. Like, I've done that. That's an abuse of grace. That's cheap grace. And if that's someone's habitual lifestyle, that's actually proof that they've not been converted. That they're still in their sins. They're still under condemnation from God. Because their heart hasn't changed toward their sin. They just fear punishment. They don't hate the sin. So what, essentially what John is saying here in, in verse 1 is don't sin. Right? Don't sin. I am not writing about free grace and forgiveness in order that you might abuse it. That's not my goal. I've already told you that living a lifestyle of sin is inconsistent with knowing God. Right? And you guys got to experience that with the great power outage of 2017. Right? 1 John 1, 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So it's inconsistent to live in a state of sin and claim to know God. It's, you're a liar. 
You don't know him. You're unrepentant. Right? I think that's why John is saying this. I'm writing because I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to abuse the grace of God. But more than that, right, so I had to address that. I see something here for us that's really great. John said that he writes with the express purpose that we may not sin. Right? I know you're thinking, dude, you've said that 14 times. Right? Just bear with me on this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote, I don't want you to sin. Right? The Holy Spirit, God, does not waste his breath or ink. Right? You feel me on that? He didn't write that for no reason. Which tells me this. It is actually possible for the Christian to be holy. Please hear me on this, because at Revolution, we are so quick, and, and it's good, it's good sound doctrine of the depravity of man and the utter corruption of sin in us, that we say, yeah, dude, like, I'm not going to be perfect. I sin, and I sin every day, and I am unrighteous, and it's only the righteousness of Christ that saves. Yes and amen. Right? That is the gospel. That is true. We're really quick to say that, but we're not super quick to say, but I can be holy. Seriously, we're not that quick to say, but I can kill sin. We usually just stop with that first half of the phrase. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I can kill sin if you're a Christian is the next part. God working in me. All right, so again, if you would say, uh, whenever I, if, as I say, you can be holy and John is calling you to holiness. If you're one of the people like me who says, but I'm still going to sin. I have two things that I want you to consider before you dismiss John and the Holy Spirit's inspiration here. One, this is, this is, this is insightful for me, right? Yeah. Knowing that you're going to fail does not remove the obligation to stop sinning. Right? As Martin Luther wrote in The Bondage of the Will, inability to do something does not like, remove the necessity that you do it. Just because God's standard is impossible for us to keep perfectly does not remove the obligation as His creatures that we have to keep the commands. You feel me on that? Right? So just because you can't do it doesn't mean that God's standard has changed. And you're still obligated to hit the standard. God says, be holy as I am holy. He says that in, I believe it's 1 Peter. It says it in Leviticus. It's all over the Bible. So that's one. So yeah, you're going to sin, but that doesn't remove your obligation to be holy. Two, John does not mean that we will become sinless. Right? That would, he would be contradicting himself in verse 8 if we say we have no sin. Right? We looked at that last week. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. He's not contradicting himself. He's not saying that we would become sinless. He means that we should sin less. There's your Baptist thing for the month, ladies and gentlemen. Remember those little quips that the preacher would always give you? John's not telling you to be sinless. He's telling you to sin less. Yeah, whatever, man. That was good. Come on. I didn't make that one up either. I stole that. It's like Dr. Seuss preaching. Um, Anyway. But it is actually possible for us to live holy lives. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, everything you do is sin. Just laying that out there. The Bible says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So whatever is not done to the glory of God by faith in Christ is sin. Literally, the, the breath that you take as an unbeliever is wicked because you're not living for the glory of God. That's how utter, like utterly depraved that we are, apart from the sovereign grace and mercy of God working in us to speak faith into us that we might look to Christ for salvation. But if you're a Christian... It is possible for you to live a holy life. It is possible for you to kill sin. Again, not perfection, right? But what I'm talking about are, is lives marked by righteousness and obedience, right? Spotted and stained throughout, punctuated with sin, absolutely, but a life with a trend of godliness, 
right? Like an upward slope, right? You're not going straight to the top, but an upward slope that we can actually be holy. And the Bible teaches us that we are empowered to live holy lives by God, the Holy Spirit. Right? Romans 8.14, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Right? So the Spirit leads us. Where does the Spirit lead us? Well, the Spirit leads us into paths of righteousness. Right? Think Psalm 23. God, lead me. Right? The Holy Spirit's not going to lead us somewhere that the Father wouldn't lead us. Right? The Holy Spirit leads us into righteousness. Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul in Galatians says, if we heed the Spirit's direction, we will kill sin. Which tells us that as Christians, the Spirit is always trying to get our attention. Listen to me, you moron, don't sin. Right? He's saying if we will heed the Spirit, He will lead us into righteousness. We will kill sin. We will put to death the desires of our flesh. In Philippians 2.13, this is one of my favorites if you want to talk about being empowered towards obedience and holiness as a Christian. Paul writes, for it is God who works in you, both to will, to give you the desire to do righteousness, to be holy, and to work for His good pleasure. So God, by the Holy Spirit's dwelling in us and working in us, has given the believer the will and ability to be holy. We're without excuse to not be holy, to not have a trend of godliness in our lives. We're utterly without excuse because to take it a step further, though we still fight with our sinful nature, Right, Romans 7, we looked at it last week, I'm sure we're going to look at it some more. Though we still fight against our sinful nature, we are no longer slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes, We know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So we don't have to sin anymore. It is not an imperative on us that we must sin. Before the Spirit took up residence in us, before God converted us to Christ, all we could do was sin. But now that the old man has been crucified with Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Again, before we were born again, that's all we could do. But now by faith, we can actually ignore our flesh's call to disobey God. So we will never be sinless, right? But uh, Sorry, sidebar here, just a freebie for you, because this is is big for me. Uh, We got anyone in here that struggles with what I would call a chronic sin? Just seems like you just can't, like you've just been stuck in it for forever. I'm with you. With you. Been there, man. Been there. (laughs) You're never going to be sinless. But in light of the stuff that we just looked at, that doesn't mean just you're, the fact that you're not going to be sinless does not mean that you have to fight the same sins for the rest of your life. The Holy Spirit is stronger than your flesh. The Holy Spirit overcame your flesh in your rebellion and disobedience to God and your unbelief and converted you to Christ. Surely now that He's taken up residence in you, He can empower you to overcome your sin. Whatever that one chronic sin, that, that whatever it is, you don't have to struggle with it for your whole life. You don't have to. You can actually overcome it. And I'm not trying, I'm not in a fairy tale land here, right? That sin is probably going to creep back up on you once in a while. But we can indeed move on and move past those pet sins of ours. We can move past them and move towards holiness. Because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so. So in light of everything that we have seen thus far, just in verse 1a of chapter 2, 
Right? We've seen our freedom and ability to overcome sin. We've seen John's desire that we not sin. In light of those two things, I want to urge you to this. Stop sinning. Seriously. Stop it. Like, we must be holy. The author of Hebrews says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. Be holy. Put your sin to death. Stop sinning. If you're a gossip, if you're a backbiter, a rumor mill, someone with a vulgar mouth who just tears people down every time you open your mouth, shut up. Shut up. If you're a husband that doesn't spiritually lead his wife and children, if you're a husband who does not disciple and pray with and look at the scriptures with his wife and children who's not intimately involved in their lives, step up. Fulfill your biblical role. If you're a man who's constantly giving in to his lust, or woman who's constantly giving in to their lust and looking at porn, rebuke your thoughts when they come through your head. Throw your computer away if necessary. Be pure. If you're a person who is greedy and likes to mask it with financial responsibility, force yourself to give your money away. If you're someone who is always saying, I'm just always overwhelmed by anxiety and I just worry and that's just how I am, stop and trust the Lord to take care of you. This is what the scriptures call you to. Now, I'm not being a legalist up here. Pray for heart change, right? I'm I'm not just talking about an action change. We need heart change. And only God can do that. But nevertheless, put the actions to death as you wait on heart change from the Lord, as you take diligent use of the means of grace in prayer, in corporate worship, in in, in studying the Scriptures. Put the actions to death. Stop. Now I know what I just said. Some of you are probably having flashbacks to if you grew up like me, uh, for the church that I grew up in. Because what I just said is hard. Right? I stand by it. Stop sinning. I stand by that statement. God demands that we stop sinning and be holy as He is holy. And His standard is indeed perfection. He demands it and decrees it, so we will say it just as loud from the pulpit. But has anyone in here ever tried to stop sinning? No hands. So there are no Christians in here. Um, yeah, thank you. Boy, if you've ever tried to stop sinning, you know it's not really that easy. Seriously, if, you, if you've ever tried to stop sinning, if you've ever taken this call to radical holiness seriously, you know that it is not that easy. Right? It's always like two steps forward and one step back as we kill sin. Right? Like Matt Chandler calls it this awkward dance of sanctification where we're two forward and one back. Right? It's just like a horrible, god-awful salsa if we could just stop sinning, we would all be perfect, would we not? I don't know any Christian, especially in this room, because I know you guys, I don't know any Christian here who would say, yeah, man, if I could just stop sinning, I still wouldn't. Like, I would just totally keep sinning. Like, I don't, I don't know anyone that would do that. Because it's not like that. It's a real, true fight to stop sinning. It really is. It's hard and it hurts. And hear me on this. Every true believer that has tried to stop sinning eventually reaches a point where you fall on your knees before God and say, I can't completely stop sinning. 
You cry out to God in desperation. I can't be perfect. Every time I overcome a sin, I see three more that need killed. God demands perfect obedience and I can't satisfy His demands. I can't fulfill the law. I can't do it. We all come to that and we know that that every sin deserves the full wrath of God and we feel the weight of that and it crushes us because we know God's response to sin is always the same. His response is always wrath. And that cold hard reality that I can't do it drives us insane and crushes us. And if you've never felt that way, you're not trying to kill your sin. If you can't relate to this at all, you really need to do some self-evaluation and ask yourself, am I trying to be holy as God is holy? But for those of us who do feel that way sometimes, that I just can't do it, no matter how hard I try to do it, John says in that moment that we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So an advocate, the Greek word is parakletos, right, is one who comes alongside to help. This is good news. This is good gospel. An advocate is one who comes alongside to give aid to one in need. And in this context, the advocate is like a defense attorney before God to plead our case. Someone to intercede on our behalf when we sin. So we are unrighteous sinners before a holy God exposed to oncoming wrath. But John says, hold on. Don't despair, sinner. You have Christ at your side to plead for you. Christ is your defense attorney. And it's really good to note, and this was just very sweet to me this week as I studied this word, parakletos. That word is not a professional term. That word does not mean lawyer. In this context, that's the, that's the vision that we get in here as an advocate. But usually, it's not a professional term. It's always a friend. Your friend comes to your aid. Your parakletos is someone who knows you and cares for you and comes to your aid. It's not usually a professional that you hire. It's a friend. So as we sin and, and incur the just wrath of God, Jesus Christ comes to us as a defender and friend of sinners. So some of us, and if you're like me, I struggle with this bad view of the Godhead in general, right? That whenever I sin, God is just so frustrated and irritated with me and sick of my BS that He just doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. But this word, parakletos, tells us that Christ comes as a willing friend, as an eager Savior to rescue, no matter how much we have failed to keep the law. So please hear me, Christian, if you're struggling in sin and you're beaten down by the law and see that you can't fulfill it. Christ has not grown tired of you. He's your friend. He's still God Almighty and Lord of Lords, but He counts you as friend by faith. That's good news. But how does this divine defense attorney, to quote John MacArthur, because that's a good turn of phrase, how does this divine divine defense attorney plead for us? How does he plead? Well, I'll tell you this, he doesn't plead that we are innocent. Right? Uh, in fact, Jesus Christ only takes guilty clients, because he is the most bomb defense attorney in the world. Um, 
In chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, right? So in order to, to get Jesus as our advocate, we have to come to Him and confess our guilt to Him. So how is He going to plead on behalf of guilty sinners? He does not plead for our innocence. He pleads for our pardon. That is beautiful. He pleads for pardon, not for innocence. Pardon is that God would refrain from punishment. That He would grant us amnesty, though we deserve the full weight of His wrath, that God would turn away from it and refrain from giving us what we deserve. And Jesus appeals to two things for our pardon. This is going to be a lot of review. A lot of you have heard this so many times, but please let this hit you in your heart. Jesus appeals to His own righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why John says, the righteous, in verse 1. He appeals to His righteousness, which is His life. In verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He appeals to, secondarily, His propitiation. His death. So the first one, He appeals to His righteousness. To have Christ as our advocate means that we have come to Him by faith alone for salvation. That we have thrown away all works, all goodness that we think that we have in us that might merit us some favor with God. We count that all as rubbish and we hold on to Christ alone by faith. We come to Him, I have nothing, I want mercy. We've thrown ourselves completely on Him, trusting that His person and work is enough for us to save us. The New Testament concept now is that by faith, we are in Christ. Right? We are in Christ. He is now our head. He is now our representative. And His merits are now imputed to us. Or another, word, another way to say that is His merits are now put on us. Right? Like if you're laying here on the ground and I put a blanket over you. That's to impute something. Right? I lay it on top of you. Christ's merits, have, that has happened to us by faith because we are in Him. So throughout Christ's life on earth, Jesus never once sinned in any way. He was perfectly obedient to the law. Right? In theology, we call this the active obedience of Christ. A rapper named Shylin has a great song about that. You should look it up. Right? But we call this the active obedience of Christ, where Christ kept the law. He kept the law where we fail to keep the law. And in doing so, He fulfills the righteous requirement of God. God demands utter perfection, and Christ delivered on it. And now, before the Father, Jesus appeals to His perfect law-keeping on our behalf. He does not appeal to our ability to keep the law, but His ability to keep the law. And I think there's a beautiful picture for how this works out. Imagine Christ standing before the Father saying, Father, they sinned. Not claiming their innocence here. They sinned. They broke the law, but I kept it for them as their head. They are in me, and I am in them. What's mine is theirs, and I am perfect. They are now counted as perfect in me. That's what Christ is arguing. That His merit be counted to us. So though we are completely unrighteous, Christ is now our righteousness. His active obedience is now given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums this up beautifully. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ argues His righteousness, gives it to us, imputes it to us. That's what He's arguing for our pardon, primarily. Or at least at first, sorry, maybe not primarily. The word has some connotations I don't want to use. 
But salvation by this advocate must be twofold. So first, Christ argues His life and His law-keeping in our place. But not only do we need an act of righteousness, but God demands a payment for sin. And this is a gospel truth that legitimately gets assaulted because people think that this makes God too bloodthirsty, makes Him too much like the pagan gods, makes Him too archaic, makes Him just that kind of junk. You'll hear this all the time. But the Bible clearly teaches, the Word of God clearly says that God demands a payment for our sins. That His wrath must be satisfied. Because His justice provokes His wrath. Justice must be done because God is holy. If He is not holy, He is not God. Which means if He is not just, He is not holy. Which means He is not God. And so on. Wrath must be satisfied because He is a holy, just God. When someone breaks the law, propitiation is required. That's a word we don't use very often unless you're me. I love to use that word. To propitiate means to satisfy. Particularly to satisfy the wrath of God. To appease God Himself. God demands justice. He demands justice be served for offenses against Him. And Jesus Christ bore the full weight of the penalty of breaking the law in His crucifixion. In the crucifixion of Christ, He did not merely just physically die, but God poured His wrath out on Christ on the cross. So though He Himself had never sinned, He bore the full weight of our penalty. Just think of the mercy and grace at work in that. In our place as a substitute took the wrath that you and I deserve for our inability to keep the law, for our willful disobedience to Christ or to God. So Christ says, Father, yes, again, they deserve your wrath, but you poured it out on me in their place, and I paid for it. You crushed me for them. Justice demands that you pardon them, because I have satisfied it. On the cross, Christ said, it is finished. The transaction is over, is what that means. The transaction is over. Their sin has been paid for. The righteousness, righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled. It's done. Christ offered Himself as the one-time sufficient sacrifice for sin. God demanded one. Christ said, I will be that. God is satisfied. Listen, please, Christian, if you're despairing in sin at all, God is satisfied in Christ. You will not satisfy Him. On your best day, you cannot fulfill the law. On your best day, if you satisfy the justice of God, you go to hell forever. But Christ has done everything required for us. That means that our salvation and our forgiveness of sins is absolutely certain. Because God Himself has met the requirement. God the Son, Jesus Christ. And we have an eternal advocate with the Father. Right? And that with the Father, the word there for with in Greek is pros or pros. I don't know, I can't really speak it. Um, it means before the face of God. Right, pros means pros, whatever. It means to be face to face with something. You can't get any closer than that. That's how close our advocate is with the Father. You don't get a closer one. You don't get a better one. And Jesus Christ is the only one sufficient and fit to stand that close before the Father and plead a case for us. 
He is the all-sufficient advocate. And He lives to intercede. That's why we can say in Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, because of who Christ is and what He has done, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost, thoroughly, entirely. He is sufficient. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. John Calvin has a really good note on this. He says, Christ's intercession is the continual application of His death to our salvation. That is spot on. Christ's intercession is the continual application of His death to our salvation. So He died once, never to be sacrificed again. Right? We don't believe the Catholic Mass thing where Christ is re-sacrificed in some way every Sunday in the Mass. We don't do that. He was sacrificed once for all time. But His intercession means that every time we sin, Jesus is right there before the face of God to enter the plea of His life and death for us. What a beautiful picture that that is that John paints for us. Right there. Our forgiveness of sins is absolutely undeniable because the Father will never turn away from the work of His perfect Holy Son. And His Son stands there as our representative. So there are two things that that I want to address before we conclude and move into application. It's because I know if I don't address these, you guys might walk away with some misunderstandings. Verse 2 is a verse often used for universalism. If you guys don't know what that is, it's a heresy, right? So it's false teaching. Uh, Universalism is the belief that everyone is going to end up in heaven someday. That's manifestly untrue. And they get that because it says Christ was the propitiation, the satisfier of God's wrath for, for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some people will twist that verse to their own destruction and say that Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath for literally every person who has ever lived. That is a lie. That is false. That is not what Christ did. Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath for the ones the Father chose in eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, right? So this is by Christ, by the work of Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. How are we holy and blameless? By the life and death of Christ. That means the life and death of Christ was done for the ones that the Father chose before the foundation of the world, that we would be blessed in Christ. This is not for the universal whole world. Not everyone is going to be saved. God chose us to be blameless by the work of Christ the Advocate. So only those who repent and believe on Jesus for salvation will be saved. Period. Only the believers, only those who in faith and repentance turn towards Christ. Something I thought was interesting. The same John that writes that verse that people use for universalism also recorded these words of Jesus Christ. John 3.18 Whoever believes in Him, the Son, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus says, the whole world already stands in condemnation because they don't believe in me. But if they'll believe on me and trust me to save them, then they come out from under condemnation. So clearly, not the entire world is going to come out. Jesus says, they're already condemned. They're not already going to come out. They're not always going to come out. But the whole world, if you're curious, if you're not a huge fan of the doctrines of grace, the whole world 
means this. Believers throughout the world, Gentiles, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not necessarily every single individual has had the wrath of God satisfied for them, but all people throughout all ages who put their trust in Christ, the righteous advocate will be saved. John is highlighting that Christ is sufficient for all, from all places and all times who will turn to him by faith. He's not teaching universalism. And secondly, second thing I want to address, and this is, this is beautiful, right? If you're like me, you've maybe struggled with this. Jesus Christ and God the Father are not opposed to one another, right? Like, Jesus as our advocate before the Father does not mean that the Father is unwilling to forgive sinners. Feel me on that? Like, I used to think that, like, Jesus is nice and God the Father is mean, right? So I like Jesus. I'm going to hide behind Jesus. Shield me from the Father. I don't like him. He's a mean God. Old Testament God is way meaner than New Testament Jesus. That's not true, right? It was the love of the Father that sent Christ to live and die to become our advocate. The most famous verse in the whole Bible, at least in America. John 3.16, For God, the Father is in view here, for the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It was the Father's plan to send one born of a woman to fill the righteous requirements of the law. Galatians chapter 4. It was the Father who planned to satisfy His wrath on the Son. It was the Lord's good plan to crush Him. Isaiah 53. It was the Father's plan. Like Stephen sang in the beginning, see the Father's plan unfold in Christ crucified. The Son is not pitted against the Father, and furthermore, the Son was not forced to come and do this. They're not opposed to each other. Jesus came and did all of this willingly. I want you to hear some of the words of Jesus. John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He said, I lay it down of my own accord. No one's forcing me to do this. No one takes it from me. I want to do this. Luke 22, Jesus is praying before his crucifixion. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He wants to do the will of the Father. He wants to come and die to rescue sinners. In John 18, 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put up your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I want to drink this cup. I want to take the cup of the wrath of God and drain it down to the dregs. I want to do this. I want to save sinners. He wanted to accomplish the Father's plan. So the Godhead, the Trinity, is never opposed. The persons in the Godhead work in unity to save sinners. The Father plans and chooses. The Son accomplishes the salvation and the Spirit applies the salvation to the sinner. Beautiful unity within the Trinity. They're not opposed. What beauty that God, the entire Godhead, works together to save us. But to sum up everything that we've seen, I want to encourage you guys. First, to fight your sin. And we said, I write these things to you, my little children, that you may not sin. Fight your sin. With everything that you have, don't abuse the grace of God. Don't abuse it. Don't believe the lie either. Don't believe the lie that you can't overcome sin. God works within us to give us the desire and the ability to be holy people. In fact, that's why He saved us, right? 
that, we might, that Christ might become the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That we might become like Jesus. Right? That's why he saved us. That we might really and rightly reflect him to the world around us. So be holy. Kill your sin. Look inside yourself and see what needs to go. What needs, what, what needs corrected in my life. Submit to the scriptures. Mourn your sin. Grieve over it. Fight it with everything that you have. But when you fail, and you're going to, when you sin, do not despair. Do not despair. Because you have a great high priest. You have a great advocate before the Father. You have one who covers you, not in your unrighteousness, but in His own righteousness, and has bore your penalty in your place. Do not despair. Kill your sin, but do not despair. Christ is our salvation. Not our obedience. His righteousness is the plea, not ours. And Christ is our salvation. He has dealt with the wrath of God. His work is perfect. His work is finished. And His work cannot be denied by the Father because the Father loves the Son and will not deny the Son. We are saved, believer. Because before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. We have Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us beyond measure. God, save us from the thought that you and your son are pitted against one another but that it was your will that we would be saved, that you chose those of us who have come to faith in Christ, that we would see the beauty of the gospel. God, make us into holy people. Holy Spirit, convince us of the truth of the word that we can indeed put our sin to death, that we'll never be sinless, but God, we can indeed kill sin in our lives. Make us into holy people. Let us fulfill the... the, the desire that you have for us, that we would be like your son. Father, thank you for the times that we sin, that you've provided an advocate for us in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. God, let us run to him and him alone. Holy Spirit, remind us not to look down, but to look up in the midst of our sin and see Christ standing there before the throne of God to save us and to enter in his plea of righteousness and propitiation on our account. We love you and we thank you for everything you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.